you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome, everyone, to What's Next for Chicago Politics. This is a roundtable discussion with an all-star panel that includes Stacey Davis-Gates, Ben Jarofsky, and Alderwoman Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez. This event is hosted by two Chicago institutions, Haymarket Books and the Chicago Reader, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary through a series of activities that will take place over the next year. I'm Kim L. Hunt, a proud member of the Reader Board. And in case you missed it, this year the Reader made the leap from for-profit to nonprofit status. And this is an essential aspect of our sustainability and growth. For 50 years, the Chicago Reader has been the go-to guidebook for the best and the worst <laughs> this city has to offer. We're launching the Chicago Reader Century Fund to ensure another 50 years of groundbreaking, award-winning, culture-defining journalism and reporting. And since we are a nonprofit, your contributions are tax deductible. Throughout the program, you will see links in the chat uh, that encourage you to follow up on some of the things that I am naming. Uh, I also want to name that we have merch. So if you want to represent the reader, we've got T-shirts, mugs, masks, and more. You can find out about all of this and much more at our website, chicagoreader.com. So thank you so, so much for joining us this evening for what's next for Chicago politics. We're going to cover not only what is happening right now in Chicago politics, but also give space for imagining a future Chicago that serves the interests of ordinary people, not just the city's elites. Before we move to the roundtable discussion, I have a question for those of you in the audience. And I want you to respond in the chat, but not immediately. I'll tell you when. I'm gonna give you the question, a few moments to type your answer, and then I'm gonna to count to three. And when you hear three, press send. So I'm gonna ask the question, I'm gonna give you some time, and then I'm gonna do a, a count to three. And as soon as you hear three, press send. So here is the question. What's one word that comes to mind when you hear the phrase Chicago politics? I'll repeat that. What's one word that comes to mind when you hear the phrase Chicago politics? So I'm gonna give you 45 seconds to write, to type your answer. Do not hit send, do not hit send. You got 45 seconds starting now. Don't cheat. <laughs> One word that comes to mind when you hear the phrase Chicago politics. I've got my timer going. 
20 seconds left. Here's the countdown. When you hear three, press end. One, two, three. It's in. What's that one word? <laughs> I see something that was two words. <laughs> so I can't see the chat. I am. Um, the wonderful uh, Dana Blanchard is gonna from Haymarket Books is gonna send me a text with some of the responses. So you all can see the chat, but we can't see all of the chat. So we'll see what I get in just a second here. Okay, I'm getting a message that there's gonna be a little bit of a delay. So we'll keep it moving and I'll come back to your responses. And thank you all for participating in, uh, in this way. And by the way, throughout the roundtable discussion, feel free to put questions and comments in the chat as well as respectfully engage. Uh, Dana will be sending your questions to me throughout the program. So, and now we're gonna move on to our discussion. And it's my pleasure to introduce our panelists. Uh, I'll read their bios before diving into the questions. So first up is Stacy Davis Gates, who is the vice president of the Chicago Teachers Union. In the fall of 2019, she helped to lead a 15 day strike and to negotiate a historic contract that provides for smaller class sizes, ensures a nurse and social worker in every Chicago Public School, secures sanctuary protections for immigrant families, and supports students and families experiencing homelessness. While at the CTU, Davis Gates has been the architect of bold political and legislative campaigns for the schools and city that all Chicagoans deserve. Ben Jarofsky is a Chicago-based journalist, author, and podcast personality. He began reporting on local politics, sports, and city life for the reader in the early 1980s and joined the paper as a full-time staff writer in 1990. Jarofsky has won many journalism prizes, including the 2010 Chicago Journalist of the Year Award from the Chicago Journalist Association and the 2011 Illinois Journalist of the Year Award from Northern Illinois University. In addition to covering citywide issues in his long-running reader column, his, he hosts the political podcast, The Ben Jarofsky Show. And finally, we have Alderwoman Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez, who is a mother and resident of the Albany Park neighborhood. Prior to taking office, Alderwoman Rodriguez Sanchez worked as a youth educator and was involved in community groups as an activist and organizer. Her priorities as older woman include protecting neighborhood affordability, supporting her ward's immigration population, and 
young people and diverse communities, as well as creating more democratic processes so that ward residents are involved in the decisions that impact their lives. So thank you all so much for being here tonight. I want to read some of the responses that I received. Um, so uh, some folks, some of the responses are to that question, what's one word that comes to mind when you hear the phrase Chicago politics, broken, machine, corrupt, insiders, unfulfilling, brawl, shady, corruption, flawed. Those were some examples. <laughs> and so I want to start with that same question that I asked the audience. And I want to ask that question of the panelists. What one word comes to mind when you hear the phrase Chicago politics and why? And Ben, let's start with you. What's that word and why does that word come to mind for you? Well, I must be honest. The first word that popped to my mind when you asked that question was corrupt. And um, uh, so what do I mean by corrupt? I guess I mean uh, dishonest. I feel that there's a tremendous amount of dishonesty uh, in Chicago politics. And uh, it's on my mind. I told you this, Kim, before we began the show. It's really been on my mind. And I don't want to offend any of our listeners already because I know I'm going down that path. Uh, but I was watching Rahm Emanuel's testimony today at his confirmation hearing to be ambassador to Japan. And just the level of dishonesty on display at that confirmation hearing was just stomach turning. And I, I, I'm like, I can't believe anybody's falling for this. <laughs> but why should I be surprised that the senators are falling for it? And the citizens of Chicago fell for it for all these years. And so just in that particular instance, he was talking about uh, why. Uh, he didn't rush forward to release the videotape of uh, Van Dyke shooting Laquan McDonald, and he blamed it on an investigation. We all know. We all know. Come on, everybody. And I know Stacy knows and Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez knows that that's not the reason. He, he concealed it because he wanted he thought it would damage his career, his political career. There was an election coming around. It was a dumb decision on his part. I didn't mean to start right off, Kim, talking about Rom and this, but what it's it was just like exhibit a of dishonesty and not being truthful with the people of the city of chicago and so to me look my whole life here in this city since 1981 has been dealing with stuff like this uh since i came to town and started writing about it and my patience i'm losing more of my patience as i get older so that's the word i thought of uh corrupt and the image that popped into my mind was Mayor Rahm testifying today uh, at his Senate confirmation hearing. Thank you, Ben. And no need to apologize. If they didn't want you to go there, they wouldn't have asked you to be on this panel. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised how that often doesn't work out, but I hear you. <laughs> so, Stacey, I'm going to turn it to you. What's one word that comes to mind when you hear that phrase? Um, that we have opportunity. So the one word is opportunity. Um, I think we do focus in on the obvious, um, and we should. And what it says to me, um, both as an educator and an organizer, is that if so many people are left out of 
um, the milieu of politics, then it means that there are a lot of people that we get to organize and bring to it. So I see opportunity. Um, I see it as a, a way for us to um, begin and not begin, but to continue pushing on um, the margins that are constructed because of machine, because of corruption, because of white supremacy, because of paternalism. Um, I do this work because I see opportunity. Um, so I'm going to say opportunity. That's what I see. Um, and that type of hope is also a practice, right? And we have to continue to hope for the things um, that we need, the spaces that we um, don't yet enjoy, but know exist because there are people who have them. Um, and I'm going to be a little bit like Ben, um, but I'm also very sad today. You know, I'm I'm in my I'm in my feelings today, um, and I might be for a while. Um, I am black, and I have black children. Um, I have the fortune of having two twenty-something-year-olds um, when I married my husband, and together we have three um, that are um, public school students right now: um, seventh grade, fifth grade, and second grade. And I am sad because their lives don't mean a damn thing to the political elite in this country. Because the only way that Rahm Emanuel could have his ass in a space where he can actually get a question about being an ambassador is because you don't see the humanity in my children. They arrest and lock up black kids in Tennessee with made up charges. And he can sit there and half-ass apologize for not leading with empathy, transparency, care, and his reward, his reward is to get an honor. So I'm having a difficult time as a mother, as a reality how much lives don't mean a goddamn thing to the political elite in this country. So I'm struggling. Thank you for that, Stacey, for holding both those things that feeling of opportunity as well as that sadness. Uh, and, and last, we'll bring it over to Alderwoman Rodriguez Sanchez. What is your response to one word that comes to mind when you hear the phrase Chicago politics? I couldn't use one, so I used like a compounded situation. <laughs> I said gut-wrenching and um, and I, I am so glad that I'm here with Stacy because I just I needed to hear Stacy today. Um, and I needed Stacy to say what she just said. And she never disappoints. <laughs> um, I'm also incredibly sad and it, it is gut wrenching, right? Like we we were elected with like really big hopes that we were going to to be able to to change and transform things. And I, you know, I'm still dedicated to that. And I know that we we still can and we have been. We have been changing the conversation. We have been forcing people to contend with things that they didn't before, that they didn't have to. Um, we're calling things out, but it is it's devastating. <laughs> A lot of days to be in there, to be to be in the belly of this beast that is the that is politics in Chicago. And today, you know. Uh, the fact that Rahm Emanuel was even considered for this position and allowed to sit there 
and make a yeah a half-ass apology but not even that like because I didn't even hear an apology I I heard him making excuses and saying that he didn't know oh I didn't know nobody told me not yeah how is that excusable for the, a man that boasted so much about his power? How did you not know? How did you not do anything about it? And of course, that is not the only sin of Rahm Emanuel, but it is one that left such a deep scar in, in, in our city. Um, and, and we're never going to forget that. Chicago is never going to forget that. Um, so, so today is a really hard day for, for a lot of us. And oof, we, we did send a letter. Um, we scrambled to, to make sure that we send a letter in. I mean, we have been yelling this for months now. And even when it was in the press, even when it was in national press, like there was no attention paid to it until last night when finally somebody was like, well, if you want to send something, send it now. And we scrambled to get a letter together and get as many signatures as we possibly could in like a matter of hours to make sure that that was in there. And I could be used to say, well, actually, there are electors in Chicago that do not agree with this. Right. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's what Stacey said. It's how is it possible that we live in a society that allows this and that and that rewards that kind of behavior, that kind of racist behavior, that kind of disregard for the lives of our people. Um, so gut-wrenching is definitely one of the words in which I would describe politics in Chicago. And I don't want to dismiss the hope because I also love the city so intensely because of the people who fight, because of the people who struggle, and because of the people who are willing to do anything um, to make it better. Thank you for that. And I so appreciate what you're saying about it being a gut-wrenching kind of thing, but also still dedicated to the work. We still, I don't know how, I don't know how. <laughs> I'll just say that. I don't know how. Um, so last week, uh, looking at a different mayor, uh, last week, uh, LGBTQ plus leaders hosted uh, an event called the LGBTQ Legacy of the late Chicago Mayor Harold Washington, which is part of a series of events uh, marking his 100th birthday, uh, which will be in 2022. So how would each of you describe Harold Washington's legacy for the city as well as for your for yourselves. Um, so let's start with you, Stacy. How would you describe uh, the late Mayor Harold Washington's legacy for Chicago as well as for for you? So his legacy, that's a that that is a good question um, and how it impacted me. Um, I'll start with when he won. I was, you know, in elementary school and him being like mayor of Chicago um, showed me that, showed me possibilities, right? A black man, Chicago, but it wasn't just him. And, and this is the part of his legacy I think that we're gonna have to drill down on. It was the hope that everyone else had, all of the black people in the city, all of the, the, the good people in the city who saw equity, um, who wanted inclusion, um, 
their ability to organize, their ability to keep it moving, the resilience of that time period, meaning that people kept trudging along in spite of all of the obstacles that were being erected in front of them. That legacy is, um, for me, that is the thing. And it has to be if I'm an organizer, right? The possibility of mass movement, the possibility of transformation with the many, with people, us, we, that is the biggest part of his legacy for me. Possibility, um, movement and transformation. I think the other part, and this too needs to be drilled down on, is how our hope can be snatched from us um, because we can't control every lever, right? We couldn't stop the Grim Reaper from visiting um, the great Mayor Washington and how and what that has meant for Chicago ever since. Um, the factions, um, people in their own stories about what happened and why it happened, but also how the power structure regroups and creates other mechanisms to um, prevent um, to circumvent and to suppress and how you have to redouble your efforts and how it's not necessarily about the one person, but it's about the many. And so those are the, those are the pieces of the legacy that I believe that I live with in this moment, um, that there's possibility, um, that the resilience that one has to have to organize and love Chicago and um, want to see transformation. For me, that's the legacy. Thank you for that. And what about for you, uh, Alderwoman Rodriguez Sanchez? Um, a lot of what Stacey said, for sure, I I I agree with. Um, I would say the the power of coalition, right? The power of being able to build bridges and understand our similarities and our needs as human beings, and and make sure that we're building power together in order to be able to address those needs and those issues. And and Harold Washington was just a master at being able to do that, right? Um, I watched the documentary uh, last weekend and it I I I feel <laughs> like I want to watch it a hundred more times because I got to see Big Bell there doing everything that he could to get in the way of what Harold Washington was trying to accomplish. And to know that I'm in that seat now that's the legacy of Harold Washington. It's the legacy of possibility. We can actually organize and get together and we can win things that we believe that are impossible. I am on that seat and I am here talking to all of you now about this leftist agenda that, you know, trying to, to take over this city in order to be able to provide for everybody. So, um, 
definitely to me, Harold Washington is possibility. To me, Harold Washington, Harold Washington is coalition, and it's um, about being unapologetic about what we want to accomplish and who we are, right? And and as, as a brown woman in office, I actually think that I underestimated the level of racism that I was going to um, to have to deal with and sexism that I would have to, to deal with um, and to, to watch Mayor Harold Washington go through what he went through, it, it was... It was heartbreaking and it was also disgusting. And he just moved through it with this resilience and this grace and this this power because there was power in what he was doing, right? Um, so much power. And I, I, I think, I mean, we are still connected to that power and we're still walking, you know, we're, we're st- standing in his sh- on his shoulders and and, and following his, his, footstru- his footprints for sure. Thank you for that. And and Ben, for you, how would you describe the legacy of Harold Washington for the city as well as for yourself? Well, uh, for myself, um, it was a. Uh, I'm I'm uh, older than my uh, uh, p- panelists on this. Uh, Stacy's laughing, <laughs> so uh, I wasn't in grammar school when uh, Harold got elected. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm, I get very emotional when I think about Harold Washington. Um, it was an eye-opening experience uh, for me, and uh, I was very naive when I moved to Chicago. Um, I from went to high school in Evanston, which is a much different type of community than Chicago. And uh, so I just thought Harold Washington was the coolest guy in the world. I, first of all, he was really friendly to me. You know, he always gave me interviews. He was very funny. He was very charming. Uh, he was probably, I mean, there's two uh, public figures and Stacey knows where I'm going with the Karen Jennings Lewis and Harold Washington were the just like the most outgoing, charming, charismatic political figures I ever met in the city of Chicago. But Harold was already a congressman, you know, and he had a way of just treating everybody like you were really important and you mattered. And he would always say, oh, that's a great question. You must take a, be a really smart person to come up with a question like that. It wasn't that a great question, but it would make me feel good. So when he won, I was I was jubilant. I was so happy that Harold Washington won that first round. But it was, folks have to remember, and I think it's probably in the documentary, Rosanna, Punch Nine. In those days, we, uh, we had a, a, a partisan uh, system. We was a Democratic primary and Republican primary. And it was taken for granted that the winner of the Democratic primary would be the next mayor because we were a city that's over 80% Democrat. So Harold Washington won a three-way split in the Democratic primary, defeated Mayor Jane Byrne and State's Attorney Richard Daley. So everybody assumed, at least I did, that he would be automatic, that he'd be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. The Republican candidate was a bizarre state representative from Hyde Park named Bernie Epton, who was a kind of a quirky character. I knew Bernie, too. And I can't believe in a million years that anybody in the city of Chicago would take him seriously as a political candidate for mayor. 
He might have been a good Republican, like a moderate Republican state rep, but I can't see him as mayor. Overnight, Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez, hundreds, thousands of white people lining up to support Bernie Epton. I, we, I used to work for uh, the Chicago Reporter, uh, and our office was right down the street from Bernie Epton's headquarters. I would watch people going into his off into that headquarters and cops and firefighters. I'm like, are you kidding me? The virulent hatred that poured out against Harold Washington, it blew my mind. And I'm like, wow, this city is so freaking racist. This city's like this tribalism that Stacy was alluding to is just so much a part of the fabric of Chicago. Just like with the corruption. And I saw it with my own eyes the first time I ever witnessed it. You know, and uh, Stacy was talking about how, as a black mom, she has to worry about that from the earliest age with her kids. I grew up, I was sheltered from it. I never saw it. And then I saw it. Like, you got to be kidding me, Chicago. You're going to take Epton, this quirky, flaky guy, over. This congressman who's smart and wise and has a whole history, came up through the machine. He knows Chicago politics inside and out. Yeah, they did. And so, Kim, I have a hard time. Just like I had a hard time believing Rahm Emanuel, like his little crocodile tears at his confirmation hearing today. I have a hard time believing Chicagoans love Harold so much because I saw the hatred on display. And I have a hard time. It's just like everything else. Muhammad Ali dies. Oh, we love Muhammad Ali. You didn't love him when he was alive. You know? And so Karen Jennings Lewis. Oh, we love Karen. You didn't love her when she was alive. Why don't I, can I see some love when the person's alive? Then I would believe you, Chicago. So I have a hard time with it. I'm going to be honest with you, Kim. I have a hard time with it. Oh, we love you. They suddenly named buildings after him and then colleges after him. You know, oh, where was the love when he was Richard Mel? Speaking of Richard Mel, fought him every step of the way. You didn't have to fight him, Mel. You didn't have to fight him. Eddie Verdolic, Ed Burke, they all fought him. Half of them fought him because they hated the fact that a black guy was the mayor of the city of Chicago and could tell him what to do. And the other half fought him because they were scared. You know, they were afraid that people would just, you know, like black people a little too much. You must be kind of weird. So, Kim, I have a hard time with that. You know what I'm saying? I just, I, I have a hard time with people rewriting history after mm-hmm. someone dies. It's always a struggle for me. You know, if like if someone dies that I didn't like, I, I, I usually just shut up. You know what I mean? Let <laughs> let the moment pass, okay? I'm not gonna go, oh, Ronald Reagan. I absolutely love Ronald Reagan, the greatest. You know, just be respectful to the family, keep your mouth shut, let time pass, and then go on with life. So that's that's that Kim. 
That's me in Aaron Washington. I feel that. I feel that. Thank you for that, Ben. Uh, for the record, I was in college uh, when Harold Washington was elected. So, Ben, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I read all of your your bios at the beginning of the segment, but um, it would be great to hear from you how you would describe your engagement with Chicago politics and and what uh, attracted you to uh, Chicago politics and the ways that you engage with it. And attracted may not <laughs> be the right word. Uh, how did you fall in might be a better word or phrase, but um, you know, how do you describe your engagement and and what brought you to how you engage in Chicago politics. Uh, so I think, Ben, you are up next. Well, after all, it's going to sound funny, Kim. After all, what I just said, uh, to make this confession, I'm utterly obsessed with Chicago politics. Uh, I've, I mean, <laughs> uh, I follow it very closely, both both of our other guests are guests on my show all the time. And uh, I love talking politics with them. I'll, I'll even talk politics with people whose political views I don't agree with just to, you know, see how truthful they'll be. Um, and uh, I, I mean, there's ideals. I don't, I guess, cause I don't really like to expose the ideals. I mean, Stacy started off by talking about the ideals of Chicago and I have a hard time uh, being idealistic in Chicago. So I really struggle with this, but there are ideals. And Chicago, um, in 1966, Chicago, when my family moved to Evanston, that summer we moved here, Martin Luther King moved to Chicago. You know, and that's the, the ultimate ideal. So I, I have this in my mind. So Martin Luther King moved to Chicago to end poverty. I'm not making this up. You look it up. He his stated goal was to end poverty. And uh, how did the city react? They threw a rock and hit him in the head. Mayor Daley, Richard J. Daley, not the, the father of the last Daley, moved heaven and earth to get Martin Luther King out of town. So I like to think that like. What inspires me to do this is embedded in that first summer I spent in Evanston watching from afar Chicago and, uh, you know, the ideals of Martin Luther King, we're going to end poverty and the reaction of Mayor Daley to get him out of town. And so I, I kind of see that struggle ever since, you know, I see that struggle all the time. I hear our mayors say they'll give speeches and they'll say, we really want to help the West and the South side. We want to make, <laughs> we really want to develop the West and the South side. And I see the chief economic development program in this city favors the well-to-do in the North side, the white neighborhoods. So it's that same old struggle, you know, Kim, where like we have our ideals, our stated ideals, and then we have a reality. And so that's kind of, what draws me to Chicago is that struggle, trying to expose what I think is really going on in the city and in the hope against all odds that someone with power 
Well, reckon Harold tried and he died. Like Stacy said, he died five years in. So, you know, that's what draws me to the city and it's crazy politics. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. And I love that you thought you had to confess that to us. We know that. We see you. <laughs> Stacy, what about for you? How would you describe your engagement with Chicago politics and what attracted you to this craziness? Um, I wasn't attracted. Um, I was radicalized. Um, and not willingly either. I would have been happy to still be in my classroom in Inglewood or in Humble Park or in North Lawndale. Um, but it was made impossible. Ernie Duncan closed my school down. He came into the Lorraine Hansberry Theater in uh, 2005 and told us um, with the aldermen in tow at the time um, that he would be closing our school because we were failing. And um, I had a lot of thoughts, right, um, about what was happening to us. I wasn't satisfied in my school community. I saw so much that um, was going unmet, but I also saw people, um, all of the people in, this, in, in, that, in that space um, trying to figure it out working hard to do what they could do. Um, and it was still not enough, right? But I was also driving um, to school or um, every day and experiencing um, the vacant lots, um, watching the news before I went in to hear what happened in the neighborhood um, the night before. Um, so that part was apparent. But to close down a black school in the Lorraine Hansberry auditorium and to tell us we have failed when I don't know, I, I, I still don't know what the thing was that those people could have done that they weren't already doing to make it work. So Arnie Duncan came and he said, you're closed. And he didn't just come to my high school, he went across the city closing schools. Um, I was fortunate enough to get another job because I didn't cost a lot of money at that point, right? I'm a young teacher, right? I wasn't a veteran yet. Um, and so I was able to go to a couple of other places. And so I go there to try and shake off what just happened to me, only to be in a situation in Humble Park where black kids from Austin um, were coming in, um, kids from Spalding were coming in. The program that I had, that I was working in, um, we had students who could not get out of the elementary school for a variety of reasons, right? And we were unwelcomed, unwelcomed. And not because there were mean people there, but because if you close schools where these children just came from, then you are attempting to now close us because it's the same children and now it's more children and you and, and you didn't bring any more resources with you. There was a fight on the corner of Division and Western every single day it felt like, right? Um, it was unreal. The lack of preparedness. Now he closed us because we were failing Right. And then the next school year, I'm at this school. You close that school and we're coming here. Well, hell, you didn't do any more to prepare for success. 
at this school than you did previously. So why did you close us? Was then the question, because it was just obvious that there was a lack of follow through, a lack of care, a lack of empathy, a lack of everything that looked like um, good administration or love and respect, integrity and transparency. So um, they drugged me into this fight. I wasn't looking for it. I actually thought that I was going to retire as um, a teacher or, God forbid, a principal. <laughs> um, I wanted to spend my life in a school community. Uh, I thought that my contribution to society would be um, through young people. Um, and I desperately wanted to be that teacher. Um, and I couldn't because I was so distracted by everything else. I was distracted by the neighborhoods. I was distracted by what wasn't in the neighborhood. And then when I was in Humboldt Park, I started to see all of these expensive strollers. And then I'm thinking, okay, I'm in here with us, right? And then I'm going outside to the subway for lunch and I'm seeing all these expensive strollers. And so there was this dissonance Right. As I'm looking at how expensive these homes are selling for, how expensive the rent is, the the fine luxury cars that were being driven around. Right. And I'm trying to understand what's going on. And so things became a lot clearer to me um, as a classroom teacher. And then they wouldn't leave us alone. It was our fault that everything was like falling apart. And that was a damn lie. Still is, by the way. Um, you can't look, you got to resource these communities and public school works. It works everywhere in this world where you invest in it, where you nurture it, where you have whole communities, it works and it's wonderful. And people get like amazing experiences, but in the places where you could give a damn about the individuals, the human beings that are in those spaces, you get what we have in way too many school communities in Chicago. And they, call, they the power structure who want to um, lock the door and throw away the key on Black people in this city, um, the political elite and the business interests who don't give a damn about making sure that our schools are resourced on the Southwest side or on the Southeast side in ways in which make them lighthouses for the nation, they called me into the fight, right? Because it was so disrespectful. It was so inhumane. It was so egregious. And then you told me it was my fault. So now I got, I feel like I have to defend myself. And fortunately for me, a woman named Karen Lewis, um, Jesse Sharkey, Jackson Potter, Jen Johnson, um, and I know y'all gonna be mad at me because I ain't call your name, but whatever. Um, those are the names that are right here. <laughs> um, but those individuals and so many others said, yeah, we're gonna draw a line in the sand and we're gonna figure out how to embrace our school communities and the individuals in it and actually connect the dots for um, the editorial boards that will go unnamed because it ain't the Chicago reader. Um, but the editorial boards who continuously get it wrong on purpose, <laughs> right? On purpose. Um, and so we said that we were gonna fight for our schools 
we were going to fight for our communities and we were going to fight for our city and we were going to love on black and brown children and working families and everyone who needs public education. Um, and if people wouldn't take it as love, then we was going to throw a couple of blows too. We were going to pick some fights because like you can only get your ass kicked so many times before you start punching back. So here we are, you know, we're in the fight. Thanks, Arnie. <laughs> Stacy, you have named so much in those last few minutes, my God. Um, and I know the journey has been rough and difficult, but I am so glad you were called into the fight and radicalized. I think Chicago schools will be better for it. The kids will be better for it. The teachers will be better for it. But And this is hard work. So I just want to name that and show much love and appreciation for what you and others are doing. Thank you for that. Uh, so Rosanna, for you, describe your engagement with Chicago politics, which is pretty obvious, but uh, <laughs> what attracted you to this and, and in the ways that you engage with Chicago politics? So um, I am originally from Puerto Rico. So I, I mean, I'm from a colony and all I learned since I was little was to fight. <laughs> there, you don't get anything if you don't fight like hell for it. And a lot of times you're not going to get it anyways. So for me, um, you know, fighting mostly for public services in Puerto Rico. I was a teacher in Puerto Rico, so I was part of the union. Um, so I ended up coming to Chicago because of austerity. Um, I was a teacher in Puerto Rico. There was a there was a law that was passed, Law 7, that uh, was a set of austerity laws um, or measures that was cutting the the budget in a lot of places and one of them was education so you know i i went from having probably like 20 students in my classroom to no cap on the amount of students in my classrooms with absolutely no resources making 1500 dollars a month with um buying my own materials and i started getting like sick it i i don't know I, I don't think that I was expected to teach at that point. I think I was expected to, to contain bodies in a room until it was time for them to go home. Um, so, I mean, I fought all my life in Puerto Rico, but at that point I was like, I, I really need to do something else because this is, this, this is just not working. And, um, I didn't want to leave Puerto Rico, but I ended up, um, trying to figure out what was out there. And I I applied for a job in Chicago with the Albany Park Theater Project, which was a, a youth theater company. Um, and I, I applied on the last day. They ended up um, <laughs> uh, asking me to come to Chicago for an interview. I did, um, and they picked me um, after I did you know, some workshops with the students. And um, my background is in community theater, mostly theater of the oppressed. I was a drama teacher in Puerto Rico and I was very immersed in struggle in Puerto Rico. So when I came here, um, the company was dedicating itself to telling stories of immigrant working class people in our community. And when I came in, what I was interested in was, yes, let's tell those stories, but let's explore the issues and see what are people doing to, to fight, right? <laughs> that, that was my lens when I came in. So we, because I came in with that lens, um, when we started exploring different subjects, what I wanted to do was to go find the people who were fighting and interview them so that our young people could learn um, 
how how you change things, right? It, it's not as much about what happens to the individual in the story, but what can we do so that the individual doesn't have to go through that? What can we do collectively? So that way I started linking with a lot of different people in movement. I, we did a play on immigration. I started taking my kids to organizing meetings on immigration and then created a play called Homeland that was a people's history of the immigration movement in Chicago. When the housing crisis hit, uh, we did a play about uh, people fighting evictions and fighting banks that were trying to, to, to take their homes. And, and I got involved with the movement, um, anti-eviction movement in Chicago. Um, we did a play on education and of course we were talking to teachers and people who uh, were fighting for, for education in Chicago, um, a play about food and we explored, uh, food insecurity. So, um, there was a lot of, I'm so sorry, my child is here. Um, there was a lot of, of work that we did, <laughs> um, that was to, that was with movement. Right. And I started understanding, um, a lot of the a lot of the things that that people were fighting for in Chicago and were a lot of the things that we were fighting for in Puerto Rico, right? Like it was uh, the connection was very clear to me. Then Tim Megan, um, a, a, a Chicago <laughs> a Chicago public school teacher in my community, decided to run for run for alderman, and he was the teacher of a lot of my young people in the community. I lived in the community too, so I decided to support that race, and we ended up organizing an IPO. We were um, we decided to organize around housing, around education, and around immigration and immigrant rights. And we started knocking on doors, making sure that we were organizing for different campaigns around those things. We started making connections with people. Um, Tim didn't end up winning, but that race helped us build the infrastructure in our community to then say, you know what, we actually want these things and we need somebody to represent us. And I don't, I mean, we were, we were definitely running to win. Um, but when it came to who was going to run and I was asked if I was going to do it, I said, no, <laughs> I said, no, a lot of times because I didn't feel like that was my place. Right. I didn't, I didn't, I, first of all, I was not even into electoral politics because I, I believed in no politician, <laughs> but after I saw Tim running, and I actually believed in Tim. And I was like, if Tim is able to get there, we're going to be able to make some noise at least, right? Like the person who was in, who was Deb Mel, uh, Deep Mel's daughter, she was not really standing for, for anything. Um, so when I was asked to run, I said no many times until I just realized that nobody else was coming that if we wanted to do this, one of us was going to have to do it. And the person that was the best position at that point to do something like this was me. And, and that was hard to sort of contend with because it was a really big sacrifice. Um, I'm a mother. I was working full time when I ran for office. Um, but we really wanted to change things. And I also saw other people that were around that was starting to say that they were going to run too. So it was, you know, I'm not going to be alone doing this. And then, and then people assure me that they were going to be with me and we build the coalition and we build movement. <laughs> and I, and I, um, and I had the support of my little one here who was rooting for me and, uh, and I decided to do it. Um, and it, it's been incredibly hard. Um, 
but I'm also supported and, and working in solidarity with so many people who have my back and who have been doing the work with me. So yeah, that's how, that's how it started. I love that you said you came ready to fight, <laughs> but then you also had to be pulled into this kind of fight from, uh, you know, running for office and that kind of thing. And no need to apologize about children or animals popping into frame. We are all at home. So it is a-okay. Um, I am going to ask a question that came in from the audience before I, I, I ask another question on the list. And I encourage others to put their questions in the chat and send them to me as well. Uh, they will be sent to me as well, I should say. So this question is from from uh, Elizabeth Evans and, and came um, came in, Ben, when you were responding to the question about Harold Washington. And the question is, well, uh, I think this is specifically in reference to uh, comments about the people make about the dead. Ben has a great point about history changing our memories. Um, and I think this is a question that can be answered for all by all, what do you think people will be saying about the last four years in Chicago, 40 years from now? What do you think people will be saying about the last four years in Chicago, 40 years from now? So Ben, how would you respond to that? Wow. I mean, well, let me go back and try to think what the world was like 40 years before. So I try to do this. What a mind game. Uh, so, uh, Stacy, help me out. 40 years ago would have been 1981. I did the math. Well, you were a social studies teacher, so I probably should have asked you that question anyway. Uh, so 1981, what the world was like in 19... You know what? They're going to be doing the same thing they do now. I was just going to say I was five. Stacy, do for that. I was literally asking, <laughs> like, if you subtract 40 from where we are now, where would that be? Because suddenly I couldn't do the math. Uh, so I turned to Stacy because she was a teacher. And I realized, uh oh, I'm asking a social studies teacher a math question. Uh, but it was an easy math question. And I answered it myself. So, you know what? We're going to be saying, um, how they stood up for justice and, uh, you know, uh, how they were on the front lines for all the good things that we believe in. I assume that's what most people want to do. They want to make themselves look as, 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 as good as they possibly can. And I think that's just like a, um, a, a human trait, a human, uh, it's just what human beings do. Uh, Kim. And uh, so I think that's what the people will be doing. Um, as to how historians judge this era, oh my Lord. Uh, I think we're in the midst, like we're at a crucial point in Chicago. And so like where we go from here will determine how people see it. And Rosanna talks about this when she comes on the show a lot. Like there's the six uh, democratic socialists who are in the city council that represent uh, like, well, they represent people like me. And, um, and then there's some right wing types in the Chicago city council. And uh, they represent like MAGA. 
And I really resent being put into the same category with the MAGA people, you know, like, because that's how conventional Chicago does it. They'll say, well, you got it you know, those nutty democratic socialists on the left, and then you got the MAGA people, you know, on the right, and we're in the middle trying to figure it out. And I resent that because I think the MAGA people are, are like insane. And that's given in the most generous thing. So my guess is conventional historians will look at this time and see it as a struggle between extremes and like this mainstream Chicago trying to keep it all together. And I, I'm already rejecting uh, that history right now. But if you ask me what, how people 40 years from now will be putting the spin on where we're at now, um, they're going to lump people like me and Rosanna uh, <laughs> in with MAGA. And I know Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez does not like being lumped in with MAGA, but that's kind of how it works, where it's at right now, politically speaking. Um, and they'll probably say that Stacey Davis-Gates, oh, you know, the all-powerful Chicago Teachers Union. That's what they always say, the all-powerful. You know what I'm saying? Like they're cutting deals. Like the teachers would, this is a conventional thing. Stacy's heard me on this one. Teachers go on strike. They go, we want more nurses. And it's like, uh, the teachers union wants to show Lori Lightfoot who runs this town. You know, they're like laughing. No, they want more nurses. So, you know, give her the nurses. Maybe there won't be a strike. Uh, but see, now that's a funny thing. I would love to hear Stacy in this one. So like the conventional wisdom is like the Chicago Teachers Union going on strike for more nurses is somehow the same thing as what Johnny Catton's era is doing right now, where don't don't get vaccinated. That's kind of how the game is played in Chicago by sort of like the mainstream thought. Going on strike for more nurses is the same thing as insisting that you not get a vaccine that will protect yourself, your family, everybody else. And so, Kim, that's a different kind of struggle that I'm talking about. It's like a media struggle, uh, writing, historic history struggle. Like, how will the story be written? And generally, it's written in a different with a different worldview than I have. Let's just put it that way. So that was the question. Like, that's my best answer for it. All right. Now I'm going to kick it to Rosanna and then Stacy. So same question. What do you think people will be saying about the last four years in Chicago 40 years from now? Um, I think this is a period of great contradictions, right? Um, and of course, it depends on on who is saying, <laughs> because if you're talking about you know who the next Nick Spasato uh, you know is is going to be saying about this moment forty years from now, <laughs> that would be different from 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 other people. But um, I think it was a it's a period of great contradictions and and moments of um, defining moments, right? I right now, like we have an abolitionist movement coexisting in the same space with, you know, a, a bunch of aldermen who at a 
police hearing are trying to bring back broken windows policing from the 80s. Um, and those are the solutions that they're proposing right now. That this is what they're saying that we need to do. Uh, a mayor that is proposing a, 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 gang, a gang ordinance to sue young people that are in gangs in order to create revenue to pay for services to be, I cannot, it's just so convoluted. And it, and we all know that it's a PR stunt. We all know that that's not gonna work. And, and, and we know that it doesn't work because it has been done and it has not worked or brought any revenue or done anything to, to prevent crime or gun violence. Um, but then you have, you know, a, a period where young people are coming out in the streets and demanding things that we haven't, you know, contended with before that, that CESA passed at the state level, for example, the, the Community Emergency uh, Support Services Act to, to create a way to do mental health crisis response without sending police, right? And creating guidelines from that. Um, so I think, um, I think what, what people would say is that this was a, a, a period of great contradictions. Um, and, I, and I think that we still have a lot of work to do in order to make sure that 40 years from now, um, history can be can be good to the ones of us that, that we're fighting on the front lines, right? Because we have a lot of things to win. Um, uh, so yeah, that that is my, my take and my hope. <laughs> So I'm a history teacher. So I, I'm think I'm, I'm it was I'm glad I'm last because it was good to hear um, Ben and uh, Rosanna like kind of like talk about it. Um, as a history teacher, it was always important for me to um, pivot from the text. Um, and in my like last couple of years, few years um, in the classroom, I was heavy into um, DBQs. Like all of my educators know what that is, document-based um, questions. And so what our students would do is that they would explore documents from the time period in which they were studying. Um, some of them were first person. Um, some of them were like newspapers. Um, you know, whatever the document was, it could be a legal document, um, you know, a variety of things. But that being said, it, it provided context and it gave life to the dates and the events. And so I, I said all of that to say that the young people who are actually transforming our world, we're only responding to them. We ain't transforming. They're transforming. Right. You don't get the criminal justice pillar out of the Illinois General Assembly without the abolitionists, without Black Lives Matter. Right. They 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 not only use the moment to shine the light, they sustained the moment sustained it in ways in which we haven't seen since um, the civil rights movement in the 60s. Right. That being said, I'm saying all of this to say that the photographs, the, the tweets, all of the different types of social media posts provide us with um, a counterweight to the headlines and the editorials that come from people who are disconnected and who are given a job to do by the political and business elite in our society. 
right? We know as um, citizens and, 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 and students of history that you ain't never getting a good editorial out of a newspaper who was owned by someone that got a lot of money. And now we got what whole hedge funds that own it here or private equity that owns, you know, the other one that didn't like us no way when it was just rich people. That being said, the work that our young people are doing in this moment to provide the narrative that reflects the needs of the real ordinary, I think is what you said, Kim, when you started ordinary people in the city and elsewhere, those are the documents that will survive, right? And ways in which I think are going to be a benefit 40 years from now in terms of exploring it and allowing people, quite frankly, I think in 40 years, there should be a lot of embarrassment for how we push people back into buildings that we knew damn well wasn't safe enough to have children in there. They're going to talk about the undercounting of cases in school communities because it didn't benefit the rhetoric that the business community needed because they needed people like me back at the cashier station, needed people like me washing their clothes and cleaning their toilets. You did. So this whole concept of like having a statement for this this made up ridiculous traumatic and 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 masochistic term as learning loss where now we got to like fit kids into a classroom and drill them and test them to make sure that they doing as good as the kids in Winneka never mind we ain't never funded resourced loved on gave to the kids that we're going to lock in a room and drill and kill them to death and then tell them they fail when they take an instrument that was always a gatekeeper and, and a testament and a symbol of white supremacy. You can't give a black kid a test that white supremacists put together to exclude me and expect them to like succeed. But that's what we're doing right now, right? So when you hear pe people like Caitlin Sabato, like on Twitter, telling her story or coming to um, a city council meeting and testifying during public participation, an eighth grader when she did it. Like those are the stories that are going to endure because quite frankly, those young people are going to be around a lot longer than our old selves on this screen. Yeah, I'm, I'm counting myself a little older. <laughs> I'm crossing over. Um, I've been told that I'm anti-status. So, um, <clears throat> but those are the stories because Caitlin is still going to be here. She's still going to amplify. She's going to write. She already writes. You understand what I'm saying? And so I'm going to depend on them to give the editorial boards a better than a run for their money. All right. This, uh, we have another question from the audience. That first question came from Elizabeth, by the way. This next question comes from Peter. Uh, and Rosanna, I will start with you, then Ben, then Stacy. Rosanna, Stacy, Ben. Did I say that right? I don't know what I said. Anyway, what mechanisms of power do you think will define Chicago politics for the next 10 years? What mechanisms of power do you think will define Chicago politics for the next 10 years? Um, hmm. <laughs> I, because I come from movement and because movement is, is what gives me oxygen, um, 
to me, the, the main mechanism of power is always going to be the people. The main mechanism of power is always going to be um, the people organized um, with clear goals uh, that we want to accomplish together. And, and all of the creativity that comes with uh, movement and the ways in which we choose to fight. And I feel like every year we get more creative in the ways that, that we do that. Um, I, I also want to believe that a, a mechanism of power is going to be restorative justice. Um, and, and the way that we understand how we build together, the, the way that we understand each other in the process of building, um, because building is really hard. And, and, and I have realized that, that there are moments in which we actually need help to be able to understand each other and to build together. Um, and, and we don't necessarily, we haven't really spent a lot of time doing that work because we're always in emergency mode. We are always trying to, 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 to put out a fire and, and we lose a lot, you know, um, under that pressure, trying to fight so hard, so hard, so hard, no rest. Um, so I, I think our main source of power is going to be uh, coming from finding the ways to build together that preserve our humanity um, and that and that allow us to to do more together. Um, I I really want to believe that at some point we are not going to be in a capitalist society um, where where power comes from from wealth, right? Where power comes from 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 a place of of influence. Um, so yeah, I'm always gonna bet in the power of the people. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, in the next 10 years. So this is why it's great to come after Rosanna um, because I get to drill down on something else. Yes, and I'm gonna say it even more like specifically, maybe more pointedly, um, the United Working Families here in Chicago. Um, you have this project that brings together um, regular old ordinary people, that word Kim, I'm gonna keep it, ordinary people, working families through their labor unions, community organizations who are fighting, like literally fighting for the lives of people um, independent political organizations that are organizing in, um, you know, wards throughout the city. This is their space, right? And that space has begot our sister Rosanna. It has begotten um, our sister Jeanette Taylor and Byron Sigcho Lopez, right? It is an intentional space that takes um, the pain, the organizing, the hope, the promise, um, and it puts together a strategy to make good on the hope and the promise, to channel the pain and the trauma, to, to, to center the many, right? So that project to me is what we are working to help define the next 10 years, where we can see a society that you know reflects us that provides us with what we need, right? And it's not hard. We're only asking for the minimum, a job that pays a living wage, 
a school where I can walk my children to, a neighborhood that is safe because it is resourced, not because it is surveilled or occupied, right? That is all folks are asking for. And and here's, here's a secret, right? There are actually communities both in Chicago and outside of Chicago that have that already. We just want it to be equitably distributed for those who have been refused that opportunity because of white supremacy, because of paternalism, because of a legacy of enslavement, because of a legacy of Jim Crow, because of a legacy of colonialism, right? Those legacies are begat, have begotten all of this chaos that we get to experience. Right. That's why you can close 50 black schools at the same time and then fire the black women that's inside of them who are providing the education and blame black mothers for the failure of their black children. Right. Politicians real comfortable telling me where I fall short, but then bring their asses back and ask me for my vote because they know that that's what I do, too. Right. So this project. is going to draw lines on what is dignity and what is required to get my vote, right? And they're doing amazing work. They have shown up for people during this pandemic. They have taken the hard positions because to Ben's point earlier, that space in between is, is, is the sweet spot for far too many people who claim that they are smart, empathetic, compassionate, and caring. Right. But meanwhile, the middle has status quo written all over it where I can be in the park with my entire life and hear um, rounds of gunshots, not even a half a block away. And the only solution ain't the solution. So in the next 10 years, I expect everything Rosanna said, and I expect a, a, a lot of it to be expressed through the mechanism that we understand as the United Working Families Party. Well, I think that uh, the mechanism uh, will be electoral. Uh, when I look, think about the, the city that I've lived in for the last 40 years, that's pretty much been the, the deciding factor. Uh, and there's been a few moments of great um, hope and optimism, you know, <laughs> when uh, against all odds, a Harold Washington wins, let's say. Uh, and, and then, you know, you just watch the counterattack. <laughs> And, you know, Harold Washington died in 1987. And then two years later, Daly got elected. And it was like the city of Chicago said, well, we're not going to let that happen again. And uh, but I, I, I do believe uh, that's that's how Chicago, Chicago, that's one thing that Chicago understands, the political power. And um, so, you know, I watched. Um, the, the changes over the last 10 years, over the last 10 years, I'd say, uh, since Karen Lewis took over the Chicago Teachers Union and was really, uh, that was like a defining moment in Chicago uh, where you had a powerful person who had, who would the, the mainstream media had to cover and sort of broadcast her voice, challenging the power. 
And uh, and I think Karen's election led to people like Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez getting elected and Byron Sister Lopez getting elected and, uh, you know, Carlos Mears Rosa getting elected, et cetera, and so forth. And so I, that's the fight. I think Stacy knows that. And that's the fight that's, you know, and I watched, you know, Karen Lewis, her, her mayoral election, her mayoral campaign lasted for about, I don't know, a month. Was it Stacy? I forget. It was very short. But I watched what she was doing and she was very strategic in what she was doing. And it's it, I think about it. That first rally she had was in Beverly, not rally. What was it? Questions with Karen or whatever she called it. Uh, Walter Jacobson was up there with her and it was in Beverly. I'm like. That Karen Jennings Lewis smart. She went right to Beverly and there were teachers with their uh, p- policemen husbands and firefighters in that room in that banquet hall. And that was a very stru- smart strategic move to try to build a different kind of coalition. And unfortunately, Karen got sick and couldn't run and that coalition never came together. And I don't know if it I mean, I think it would have prevailed. I do believe Karen Lewis would have defeated Ron, but maybe that's just wishful thinking on my part. Um, so that to me is the struggle. It's a political struggle. It's going to try to, it, it's the challenge would be to try to find a way to get people who don't always agree to at least agree on one candidate uh, and one vision, one platform. That's always been the struggle in the city, and uh, I don't see it changing, you know, that that basic uh, uh, conflict changing anytime soon. So I believe the mechanism for change will be uh, politics and elections. All right. Well, I have been riveted by this conversation. It has been so rich. Uh, I have been taking notes just for my own personal stuff. Um, I I just, I cannot thank the three of you enough for sharing your thoughts and insights um, in this day of ongoing video conferences and Zoom meetings and all that. I want to give folks a few minutes of time back. Uh, so uh, thank you again to Haymarket Books for hosting us, to our panelists, Stacey Davis-Gates, Ben Jarofsky, and Alderman Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you also to all the folks who worked behind the scenes to put this event together. And thank you for each of you in the audience for spending time with us this evening. We know that you have a gazillion things to do uh, every night of your lives, but you chose to be here with us and we really appreciate it. Uh, Please don't forget to check out all the things on the Chicago Reader's website, chicagoreader.com. of course, we love donations. They are tax deductible. And please join us for more of the many, many events coming up for our 50th anniversary. Uh, again, I'm Kim Hunt, and I wish you great health and happiness and good night. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.